0: You're listening to GDA podcast powered by GDA speakers now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday and Friday gda podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders educators policy experts motivators and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today want today's guest at your next event call gda speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com and now here's this episode of gda podcast with hosts scale and kyle davis enjoy
1: All right. So with us today on GDA podcast, we have Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo. And as anybody who listens to the podcast knows, when I do these by myself, I don't do the introduction because who am I to uh, introduce somebody when they can introduce themselves? So with that being said, Dr. Lombardo, how are you doing today?
2: I am doing very well and I'm honored to be here so thanks for having me on
1: well thank you for uh, for joining us uh, and for those people who uh, maybe have like kind of lived under a rock or, or aren't familiar <laughs> with you know who you are and uh, aren't watching like CNN or Steve Harvey or anything else like that if you could uh, give our listeners a little bit of your background and, and what it is that uh, you work on
2: So the short uh, response to that is um, I'm actually a physical therapist by training. I was a practicing PT for a couple of years. I went back to school to get my Ph.D. in clinical psychology because um, everything starts in our mind. It's all mindset, whether it's physical health or business success or a good relationship. It all starts in our mind. Um, And I got my Ph.D. in clinical psychology and. loved being a psychologist, working one-on-one, but I felt like I was pulled to do something bigger. And we could talk more about that if that's of interest. Um, and so I wrote a, my first book, which was called A Happy You, Your Ultimate Prescription for Happiness. And I learned a little statistic as I was writing that, that the average book sells 250 copies or less the first year. <laughs> and given that I was going to ask my mother and my husband to buy at least you know a couple dozen, I realized I had to get the message out there. So that's when I Uh, went on this adventure to do a fair amount of media and speaking with the caveat that I used to be so fearful to get in front of even a handful of people. And now I'm on, as you mentioned, TV quite frequently, Today Show, um, Good Morning America, Dr. Oz, um, Steve Harvey, as well as The Prince, Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. New York Times, Forbes, blah, blah, blah. All of it. Uh, Yeah. I've been very blessed with media.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. Yes. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned uh, prior to us going to record is that your whole, I guess you could say brand or the, your approach to life is, is helping people, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, to, to better understand their inner critic and, and how to work with it. Is, is that right?
2: Yeah, we all have an inner critic. Um, and I work with, you know, some of my clients are literally household names who make, you know, 10 million or more a movie um, or get that much to play a certain sport. It doesn't matter who we are, we all have an inner critic that sometimes says, you're not good enough. Don't mess up. You're in way over your head. Now, sometimes an inner critic is quiet, but when stress levels get higher, that inner critic tends to be louder and louder and tends to take control of our thinking.
1: So, you know, you mentioned that when you decided to go back uh, and get your PhD in clinical psychology, that you were almost pulled to do something bigger. Was it because of your inner critic or was it – how did you – go that route and what was that thing that pulled you or what, what uh, were you being pulled towards?
2: So when I, after after I got my PhD, I was working, um, I was actually working at um, Parkland Hospital.
1: In Dallas, yeah. In yeah.
2: Dallas, I did my uh, postdoctoral training down there and I had this client, I, I, did, I worked in the emergency room. So when people came into the emergency room and suffered trauma, I was there to help support them. And I had this consult for this guy who um, had had a a bilateral upper extremity amputation, which means both of his arms have been cut off. He was an electrician, and he'd been working on a wire that was supposed to be turned off, but it was very active. And while he was working on it, this huge bolt of current went through both arms. Um, And in order to save his life, they had to amputate his arms. So- I I distinctly remember he was already in his room and I remember I had my white coat on because I was trying to look all professional and I was knocking on the door and I was thinking, what am I going to do for this guy? I mean, obviously he's depressed. He's, you know, he's never gonna be able to work again. Obviously he feels hopeless and helpless. Like, how am I going to, how am I going to help this guy? Now, as a caveat, I respect that's not really what you want your shrink thinking, but this was early in my training. So this is where my mindset was. And I knocked on the door, opened the door and there is this gentleman, Roger, who was sitting in a chair, big bushy brown hair, no arms with a huge smile on his face. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's delusional. But he was not delusional. He was actually very happy. And he was happy because he was focused on the fact that his life had been saved, not on the fact that he had lost his arms. It was all about focus. It was all about perspective. And it just struck me that if this guy could be so happy... (laughs) Then what was wrong with me? I mean, it was pretty happy, but it wasn't this happy. I wanted more of that, and I wanted—I wanted the world to understand how we all can be happier, even if something traumatic like losing both your arms happens to us.
1: So, how is it that, and I'll even speak it to myself on this: How is it that some people, or maybe even most people, how is it that their focus or their perspective is is? one that bends more towards the negative rather than the positive? And what can people do, um, you know, maybe instantly or over time to help shift that perspective?
2: Well, you know, I'm going to start with the second part of that in terms of, you know, is it even possible to change? You you do not come out of your mother's womb beating yourself up. I'm not good enough. I, I don't, you know, I don't deserve to be in this group, whatever it is. That's all learned. And anything learned can be unlearned and relearned. The reason why we have a propensity to view things negatively is a couple things. One, it's a defense mechanism in terms of if I think the worst, you know, people often think if I think the worst, then I'm prepared. I call it umbrella syndrome, right? If 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 I if I bring my umbrella, then it, it's not gonna rain. Um sometimes people think the worst because they don't wanna be disappointed. If I think the best and it doesn't happen, then I'll be disappointed. So if I think the worst, then, then it's OK. I'll, I'll, I'll be able to better, better handle it. Um, neither of those are true. I've never worked with someone who was worried about her children. And then if a child died, said, oh, not a big deal. I was worried about it already. Um, the other reason why people have a propensity to view things negatively is stress. Stress literally changes our brain. And so if you think of stress from zero to 10, zero is no stress at all. You just got off the massage table. 10 is the most stressed out you've ever been. When you're at a zero or one of stress, you can see everything. It's when your frontal lobe, this beautiful part of your brain that makes us human, we can see things Um We can solve problems. We have a a clear perspective, a really open perspective. As our stress level gets higher, our ability to see things narrows. And we go from using our beautiful frontal lobe to our limbic system, which is our emotional reasoning. Um, And that tends to be geared towards more what we call negative filtering, focusing almost exclusively on the negatives. And so if you ever notice how there can be a a situation, a person, an event in your life that when you're stressed out, you view it differently than you do if you're calm and really relaxed.
1: I'm, I'm laughing about that because uh, it, it's, it's funny. Like when you, when you start like new relationships, so I'm a single guy and I'm dating here in Dallas, you know, it's, what's funny about it is like one, this girl that I'm dating, she says this thing to me. And I'm like, what in my head? I'm like, why are you thinking it like that? And not this other way. And I know, and I'm I'm laughing to myself now because I, I know that there's like four or five just key stressors right now that's going on in her life. Yeah. And I'm just like, I, I would just love to shake her and be like, Hey, what? <laughs> you just shift your, tilt your perspective just a little bit. Like it, this is a short term problem and it's not even worth all of this like angst and like, you know, cortisol levels through the roof and all, all that other fun stuff that kind of exactly. goes along with it.
2: Yeah, and you know that's so important because it's important to remember not only for ourselves that we see things differently, but when we, you know, think about how um, one reacts when one is stressed. Right? When I'm stressed out, I don't even want to be with me, like much less my poor children and, and husband. So when our loved ones, when our friends, when our coworkers act in ways that aren't really consistent with who they are, instead of personalizing and getting upset with them, one perspective or one approach is just to take a step back and say, you know what? Poor deers using their limbic system and not their frontal lobe. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, get a good night's sleep, and then we're going to have a conversation tomorrow. So
1: <clears throat> there are people that I've kind of come across in my life who I just feel that they're just uh, perpetually just stuck in kind of that limbic response that you're talking about, that, that yeah. emotional response that leads them to, um, uh, to jump to the very worst of things when yeah. in reality that that's not the situation. Um, yeah. How do you, uh, from an outside perspective how do you interact with those people uh, but more important uh, in, in a way that um, eases tensions or, or lessens their reliance on that uh, response uh, mm-hmm. but more importantly if you are one of those people um, and like you said you have to like start rethinking things how can you yeah. self-reflect on that as well
2: yeah you know you literally have to rewire your brain so if you think about a thought a thought is just certain nerves firing in a certain pattern mm-hmm and if you if your nerves fire kind of off to the right, let's say, not really, but you know off to the right, you have one thought. If they fire off to the left, you have another thought. Um, and the more you have a thought, the more likely you are to take that path. So it's the same thing with behaviors. And one way to demonstrate this is think about the first time you got behind the wheel of a car to drive. You're learning how to drive. And if you're anything like me, you're like, I don't know where to put my hands. you know, how much pressure do I put on the gas and and the brake? And it's awkward and strange. But now my guess is when you get into the car, you're not worried about how much pressure to put on the brake. You're thinking about what song is going to be on the radio. And the reason is because you have literally rewired your brain in terms of motor skills of how to drive. Same thing when it comes to our thoughts. So someone who has a, a real propensity to consistently think negatively simply needs to rewire their brain and have different thoughts on a consistent basis so that those become kind of the path of least resistance.
1: That's just something that kind of like is, is- – one of my th- things that I've I've seen this before with like a few people, but like they very much appear to be happy. And when it comes to mm-hmm. anything and everything, like they're they're super stoked. But when it comes to just like the minimal amount of stress or like confrontation or something, it's kind of like defaults back into that. And for that yeah. moment um, of agitation or excitement, they they just become uh, hyper emotional when it really doesn't do that. How is it that these individuals can kind of go back and forth between these two responses? <sighs>
2: Well, in general, we're an all or nothing society. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Something's either great or it's horrible. It's either perfect or it's a failure. Uh, But for these people, probably they have a a very low threshold of what's comfortable for um, being uncomfortable, if you will, and being psychologically uncomfortable. So that when everything's good, they're good. But when things get a little off kilter, um, it just throws them for a loop.
1: And I'm asking this because, from like a like a management perspective, because I know that we have a lot of people who listen to this who are you know sales managers or, or senior leadership um, uh, for businesses and whatnot. You know, there's there's comes a time and place where somebody you know, like they're the funnest people outside the office, but man, working with them is just. Ugh. And, yeah. and so, how do you can you manage that, or is it like can you can you uh, with HR's approval, you know, shake that person to help them shift their focus, <laughs> or or is this something that um, has to be you know self realized and self actualized, the, the 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 relearning process?
2: Well, I would not encourage um, any shaking All of right, no employees. Shaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it it can be, it can be learned. Like I said, we don't come out of our mother's womb with this. So anything learned can be unlearned and relearned and you can do it by having someone say, I have this issue. And so I have to make changes, but you can also do it just by teaching the new stuff. Um, So for example, I've created um, I, I wrote a book on happiness and I've created a for different companies. I have a 21 day program. It's a three minute audio that people listen to um, and they don't even know. We're not saying you're on you're miserable, so you need to listen to this. But it's just kind of learning these skills on a consistent basis. And if you learn a skill on a consistent basis, you don't actually have to go back to why am I like this? What in my childhood has created this? You can just start to make that change right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, what I have or listening to upbeat podcasts or or sharing, you know, it, as a manager, maybe it's it's pulling out the positive. So maybe it's focusing, you know, what people are doing well and how they're applying their strengths in a certain way. That's going to help kind of start to rewire that employee's brain.
1: Yeah, I think I think they're onto something with that. I mean, I can think of like one business that I was in, and we it was constant every day. It's like, hey, just very frank discussion: what's going right, what's going wrong, and what the yeah. the what's going wrong part was never a what's wrong with you. It's what's wrong, and how can we help? Yes, and it was just a, was a shift, and I, I never had that happen before. And it. Was, it was such a great environment to work in.
2: Of course, of course, I have it saying it's not failure; it's data. Um, and so, when you have an outcome you don't want if you can get to a point where you say, you know what, why didn't we get the outcome we wanted? How can we change things now and in the future so that we get the outcome we want? It's key. And that second part that you mentioned is really the biggest part, which is not personalizing, Mm -hmm. not personalizing when people give you feedback, not personalizing when you don't get the outcome that you want because people's (laughs) um, egos and sense of worth are so fragile that when they make a mistake or when they're told they did something "quote" wrong, what they hear is "you are a failure."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and again, that's that inner critic.
1: So let's uh, let's shift. Um lanes, I guess, if you will, I understand that you have a new book, uh, coming out and, uh, I want to get this right. Uh, I believe it's called entitlement to intention, uh, raising purpose-driven children. And I understand that you wrote this for a specific you know, type of individuals. Um, it's an organization that we work with like YPO, EO, WPO. Um, but what is the book concept, um, and everything else, uh, so
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. What? YPO Gold, I think they're YPO now Gold called. now. No, oh, it's not WPO Gold, gold. yes. <laughs> it's all the same. YPO. Um, you know, so I, I live in a suburb in um, Chicago, a rather affluent suburb in Chicago, and um, I, I grew up in a similar um, suburb in Connecticut, in Greenwich, Connecticut. And um, I was always, as a growing up, and now as a parent and as a clinician, I was always struck by how money and wealth can be such an instigator. And I would say wealth brings up the best in people, but it can also bring up the worst in people. And especially in my private practice, one of the biggest challenges that my clients share with me, in addition to, you know, when I'm coaching them in terms of their business, kind of business life, how their, how their personal life affects their business life, one of the biggest challenges that I have heard is, is their children. and being so fearful of, um, as I think Mark Cuban uh, eloquently said, you know, of raising a brat. Mm-hmm. So how can you use your money for good? How can you use your wealth as an advantage for your children as opposed to becoming a statistic? Because you know, uh, the statistics are pretty grim., People, um, children of, of, of families with wealth have increased significant increased rates of alcoholism, drug abuse, um suicide, eating disorders, relationship strain. I mean, it's 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 statistically very sad. And when you look at some of the research, there's a researcher out of University of California, I think he's out of um Davis, who who looks at, you know, w- when um kind of putting people in a wealthy bracket, telling them that they're wealthy, those people are more likely to lie, cheat, and steal, basically. Um, and so my whole premise is it's not the wealth per se that's causing these negative effects that we that we see in affluent individuals and affluent children. It's actually a sense of entitlement. And entitlement is, I deserve it because. Mm-hmm. I, I deserve special privileges because. I deserve for people to act a certain way to me just because of who I am. And the problem with that is it really... Um, it create, I I would say the best way to make someone miserable is to create entitlement. It really creates this false sense of self, which is, I only believe in myself. I only feel good about myself when I'm getting those special privileges. Um, and that's, that's a lot of stress to put on yourself in the world because the world doesn't always act the way that you want them to.
1: Would you say that it's a, it's a difference between, uh, like pedigree versus like legitimate experience. I mean, like there's some people who in in all honesty, just based off of what they've accomplished, that kind of like, I don't want to say entitlement, but like they, they deserve a level of respect versus somebody who it's just the kid. Does that make sense? Like I know kids that have come back who've, done legitimate work so and i know that in, in in doing so that there's some people who kind of view that kid when they come back from college or whatever as oh this kid's just the brat but in reality like they know what they're doing and you know, mm-hmm. there's this perception issue i'm just curious if you've yeah.
2: well i think everyone deserves respect um whether you have money created money or have no money at all and entitlement isn't really about um, respect. Entitlement is really about um, bowing down and 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 having people really react in, in the, the perfect way that you think they should. They should only serve you, you know, nuts that are in a bowl, or else I'm going to, you know, or there's that. No green. blue MMs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So entitlement is really it's not so much deserving respect on um, on a heartfelt level, it's it's thinking that you deserve privileges and people to react to you in a certain way. I say the goal is to go from entitlement. How is the world here to serve me and move it to intention? How am I here to serve the world? And not in terms of giving everything away and you know, having no money, but in terms of what are your gifts that you're here to share with the world? When we look at happiness, when we look at true success, it is not about having wealth and just sitting in a box. It's about sharing your gifts, whether it's your your finances, your values, your strengths that are important to you. That's when we have true happiness. That's when we have true success.
1: So, you know for a lot of these and and i've seen them i've been to greenwich connecticut i've been to you know westchester county and all of these like kind of like crazy affluent areas where you know people point to it and they say hey these kids you know They just get life's hand on a silver platter. So how can you, how can you get these kids kind of when they're growing up to be more intentioned rather than having to learn the hard way, you know, post-college when dad (laughs) says, Hey, you're not working here right away. Or or mom says the same thing.
2: Yeah. And you know, I I just take a step back even for that. You know, I think there's, For some people, there's this notion of, oh, you have you have money, so you have no problems. And I've actually as a clinical psychologist had clients who have come in and said that they were hesitant to even speak with me because they're they're kind of embarrassed about their problems Mm -hmm. uh, because they feel like they shouldn't. We all have problems. That's that's human nature. Um, So it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's just something to say, okay, this is not working for me. Let's figure out what we can do when it comes to helping raise purpose driven children. One of the key things to do, and this is my platform, whether we're talking about kids or adults, is help them cultivate what I call unconditional self-worth. Unconditional self-worth means you believe in yourself regardless. And it's in contrast to conditional self-worth, which is what most of our society is. I believe in myself if. And it may be I believe in myself if I look a certain way. I believe in myself if I make a certain amount of money. I believe in myself if people bow down to me. I believe in myself if people acknowledge who I am. But when you have that if on conditional self-worth, it impacts every single interaction that you have. Uh, Because how you view yourself impacts how you view other people. So people with conditional self-worth are the ones I talked about before. They don't want to get feedback because any feedback they hear, what they really hear is you're a failure. Mm -hmm. People with conditional self-worth operate from a win-lose. If I win, then you lose. If you win, then I lose, and I don't want to lose. So I'm going to put you down. I'm going to push you down. I'm going to somehow feel better than you, so I can feel better about myself. Um, and you know, as a society, this is this is this is where we are. We're making fun of celebrities for you know doing something, or we see you know the bullying that goes on. All of that is conditional self worth. So the biggest gift you can give your children, and frankly yourself, is unconditional self worth, which is based not on external events but on internal, your values, applying your values, your strengths, what's what's important to you. And it's, it's, it's a sense where you believe in yourself, not like you're better than other people because that's conditional self-worth. Narcissism is conditional self-worth. But it's that sense of I believe in myself and I'm going to follow what's important to me, my purpose, I'm going to follow that regardless of what other people say or do. And when we do that on a consistent basis, not only are we happier, but our relationships are better. We're much better leaders. I mean, I'm sure we all know leaders who, um, you know, either yell and scream to to get their demands met or they're micromanagers because everything has to be perfect. All of that is conditional self-worth. But someone with a leader with unconditional self-worth really brings out the strengths in other people, uh, listens to other people's ideas, is going to have the ultimate say, but is very much collaborative and pulling out the strengths of those around them, whether it's a a leader in terms of a business or a leader in terms of a family.
1: Yeah, I like that you said that there's there's like when it comes to conditional, there's like narcissism. And then when it's like unconditional, like self-worth that there's this peak, and, I, and I, I can think of a few examples where I know some people who are like – I know that it's unconditional. Like they really they, – they, they value themselves at a certain level, and I've seen people who are like in this deep, dark hole of whatever it is, and they're just like so jealous and envious, and they say that that person's a narcissist or – I'm like – and I'm just it, – again, it's that perspective shift. It's like just because yeah. you're not happy doesn't mean you have to like label somebody this or that or, or kind of whatever.
2: Well, and and that that's so important because that's exactly what goes on inside of us is reflected Mm -hmm. on the people around us. So, if if you have conditional self worth, you're going to see other people differently, and you're going to interact with them differently than someone with unconditional self worth Mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. Because how you view yourself is the lens through which you see the world. And if you have conditional self worth, then if someone walks by you, let's say someone you know walks by you, the interpretation that inner voice is saying, oh. They think they're better than you or you're no good. You're not good enough to talk, you know, to talk to you right now. Someone with unconditional self-worth is going to be like, I don't maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they're busy. Maybe they don't like me. That's okay. But they're not going to personalize it.
1: I like the, maybe they don't like me and that's okay. Maybe
2: they don't.
1: I, I, I'm one of those people where I'm like, I'm an acquired taste. You like me or you don't, and I don't really care. And like when I say that to people, they're like, that's shocking. Like, why would you? I'm like, but I'm like, I don't bend over backwards. I'm not going to change who I am. I'm not trying to fit your your narrative or your little box. I am I am who I am. Take Take it or leave it. And that just blows people's minds sometimes.
2: Because they have such conditional self worth, people pleasers are a great are a great example of conditional self worth. I need everyone around to like me so I can feel good about myself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to just you know what I'm going to be ethical and moral and who I am. And if you like me, great. And if not, that's great too. Mm-hmm.
1: Ah, so I love being able to take little snippets that I feel good with. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things that we talked about prior to recording um, was that you have a foundation um, kind of coming up. Um, Could you talk – or not coming up, but it's like one of the important things uh, for you. Could you talk about that for a bit?
2: That unconditional self-worth.
1: Oh, that's what we're talking about? I thought you were talking like an actual foundation foundation. That's what I took my notes, like a – like a, like a, wow, I feel so it's... bad about that. Well, well, we'll figure out something. We'll put a link for a good foundation then in the bio or something <laughs> like that.
2: We call that better than perfect. Hashtag better than perfect. <laughs>
1: Hashtag better than perfect.
2: Uh, yeah, I know. But you know, if you think about it, if we could, as a society, create unconditional self-worth, mm-hmm. there would be no wars. Mm-hmm right? Because I don't have to be better than you. There would be no bullying. Divorce rates would go down. Um, All all the tension at work would completely change. Uh, Openness to diversity would would completely change if we can just change how we view ourselves. Do
1: you think that some components of the society that we live in today, this interconnected society with these, these different social networks and, you know, the new iPhone seven came out. If you still have a six, I mean, not iPhone seven, the 10 comes out. And if you still have the six, you're a no like all of this stuff. Do you think it, 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 it can't help? Right. <laughs> it can't
2: help. You're correct. So it's all that comparison, comparing yourself to other people is creating that conditional self-worth. The difference is, are you in a place where you can say, Oh my gosh, I have to get the next one so that, you know, uh, people like me or so that I'm in or so I'm cool. Or are you like, Oh, yeah, I'd like to get the next one because it'd be cool. You know, it, I want to see what it's like, but I don't, it doesn't affect my sense of worth of who I am to get it or not. That's yeah. the difference.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking like on Instagram, for instance, like I have a lot of friends who they, they, they travel i mean not like so like they travel far more than like the average american but they they don't travel so much but like every single photo on their feed is curated and it's just strictly like beach pics for like the next 6 weeks even though they were only there for like 4 or 5 days they just managed <laughs> to squeeze so many pictures that that's what that's what they're putting out in the world this this yeah. false image of who they are or what they're about
2: so which is a great example of their conditional self-worth i have to look better than other people yeah. i have to look you know great But the other thing is how do you view it? So if you view it as oh my gosh, they're, you know, they're better than me or they're trying to be better than me and I'm going to put them down. That's conditional self-worth too as opposed to, that's where they are. They're trying to feel better about themselves by having six weeks of pictures. Great. I hope they had a great time. Mm-hmm.
1: So one of the things that I do want to wrap on, which is funny, is like when we were uh, talking prior, we were talking about, hey, where, where did I go to school? And I was like, and, and this name thing that I have, and I don't really want to get into it, but I go by my middle name on, on this podcast, not my first name. And um, you asked me, you know, what, what name is it and I said well you know there's this name and then there's that name and I made the switch in college to go back to my first name because I was in this these lecture halls with like 300 people and I didn't want to be that guy to raise their hand because I was in a classroom with like I didn't I didn't feel like I deserved to be there and you said that it just sparked in your head Uh, so let's look at what I'm doing right now what what does that say kind of about me that I would even just do a self-deprecating joke like that
2: well, I don't I mean, I think it offers some strong awareness, and mm-hmm. it's really important to realize, you know, if if we want to call it something, and I'm not big on labels, but just for fun because I wrote another right. book on this, and we'll just call it. you know this notion of imposter syndrome. I mean, way over my head, and people are gonna figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority over seventy percent of people admit to experiencing imposter syndrome at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. And the higher up you go, The more likely you are to experience it. So this notion again, I'm in way over my head. People are going to realize I'm a fraud, or I'm not as smart, or I I don't really deserve to be here. That goes back to that inner critic, and it goes back to that conditional self worth of comparing yourself to others and finding that you fall that you know that you're falling short.
1: And this is, and I'm saying this for myself, but I know there's probably a lot of people listening that that do this as well. But I'm like a huge fan personally of of self deprecating humor because I feel like it, it. puts people at ease, uh, sometimes, but then I, have been told, um, before and recently as well that, Hey, you know, you're a little, It's a little much. You need to Mm -hmm. maybe pull it back a little bit. And so, um, I I guess my my question for you is twofold. When is it too much or or two? When does it, um, when does that self-deprecation become like, you know, self-talk and then self-actualization and you start to believe it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, the more the more you hear something, whether it comes out of your mouth or it's in your head or someone else's, the more you hear something, the more likely you are to believe it mm-hmm. and to internalize it, right? And we've all we've all had that experience when you listen to a song on the radio, and if you listen to it long enough, even if you can't stand it, you start singing it yourself because mm-hmm. you've internalized it. So we do that with music, but we also do that with with our thoughts. Um, some people may view um, consistent self deprecation as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. To try to feel better about themselves um, because really their inner critic is beating themselves up about it. Um, and, again, it, it goes to what's going on in you, and that's one thing, but also what's going on in someone else because for you know, how much is too much, well, it really depends on the person with whom you're interacting.
1: Well, I guess I'm going to have to cut that out then.
2: No, I don't think you do it <laughs> because I think it's part of who you are.
1: I, 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 on the flip side. So if someone's self-deprecating uh, and and you know whatever, uh, and they, you keep saying these things and maybe at some point in time you you start to believe those things. What about like words of affirmation and saying, "Hey, today's the day that I'm going to do this" or "I am this" or or that. What are your thoughts on those?
2: Yeah, so it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of rewiring your brain. We've probably all experienced Affirmation, or trying to, you know, I believe in myself. Today, I'm getting the sale. I'm not going to lose it on my child today. You know, whatever it is. Right. Um, and the 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 issue with that is, if you think about think about this, scientists think we have about sixty thousand thoughts a day, <laughs> and about ninety thousand are the same as yesterday, mm-hmm. and uh, about thirty five thousand are negative. Okay, so if you consistently, without even realizing it, have a thought that's negative, I'm no good. I'm not worthy. And you have that thought, I don't know, a thousand times in a day. And then you have an affirmation. I believe in myself Uh once or twice. Then you got two thoughts versus a thousand thoughts a day. If you think of a tug of war on those, who's going to win? Right. And so affirmations can be great when you couple them with other strategies to really rewire your brain. Uh Um, and, and one way to do that is through repetition. Another way to do that is to change your state to change your physiology while you' while you're saying it, whether you're in a hip, um, kind of a hypnotic, not necessarily a hypnotic state, but kind of in a meditative state because when we get into the deeper level of brain waves, our um, our inner critic goes away and so we can absorb, new information better um, but there's a whole host of ways to use affirmations in a way that really will allow you to rewire your brain for good mm-hmm.
1: I think that uh, and this is a good place for us to wrap up but like kind of one of those things that I've learned recently and I think this comes from like Tim Ferriss or somebody like that but uh, is like getting out of your mind and into your body and so whether yeah. it's like yoga or hypnosis or just physical exertion it's just a good way to you just rattle the brain and then like create a new slate well, at least it has been for me.
2: Yeah, to change your state. I have in my home office, I have a personal, like one of those mini trampolines. Uh-huh. And so when I am stressed or when I can't think straight because if I'm writing or something, I will jump on that. And I will tell you, there are times when I'm in my office in the afternoon and I look over and one of my kids who's stressed out about a math problem or something is over there jumping on the trampoline, goes back to the math problem and can figure it out. So changing your state can be very powerful.
1: Change your states, people. And if you want to learn more then, uh, give GDA speakers a call uh, so that you can have uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lombardo come speak for you. You can do so by calling uh, 214 420 one nine nine nine. I almost gave my cell phone. That was kind of funny. Uh, or you can go to gda speakers uh, for the podcast transcripts, books, and when does the new book come out? By the way, and what's the full title again?
2: The new book comes. Out, I was going to the editor this week, so hopefully in the next month or so it'll be out. And the title is. From Entitlement to Intention Raising Purpose Driven Children.
1: There we go. Cool. Well, uh, we'll put a link there once the book is available via Amazon or something like that so uh, people can buy that or pre order it or, or whatnot. Um, again, uh, you can go to GDA Podcast for that. Uh, thanks again, uh, Dr. Lombardo.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at Gdaspeakers.com or call 214 420 1999 Visit GDA Podcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at Facebook.com/slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned
2: for more from GDA podcast and GDA speakers.